Hello, Parkview. This is Thomas Hoke, your pastors at Parkview. I want to welcome you to the Parkview Groups podcast. This is the episode for the week of February 6th through 12th. That's Sunday the 12th. Uh, so hopefully you're listening to this uh, sometime during the week, preparing, learning as we prepare to hear the word preached on Sunday the 12th and then to discuss it sometime after that. My goal each week is to inform and guide group leaders, or sorry, group members, and to train group leaders at Parkview to make whole disciples of Jesus. This week we're learning from Acts 19 verses 21 through 41, and during the training segment for leaders and the curious, I'll be asking you some questions about listening. So you'll want to listen up. Community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. So let's go. Got a couple things to inform you about this week in the group's world, things that will affect your life. Uh, you might have heard of a little football game that's happening on this coming Sunday. It's called the Super Bowl, and uh, or is it the Superb Owl? Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, some teams are going to get together, and uh, I guess like a billion people are going to watch this game. Many of the people in your group, if you're a leader, if you're a group member, your fellow group members, they probably want to watch this game. So many of our groups I know meet on Sunday night. So I just want to make sure that's on everyone's radar. 5.30 p.m. is kickoff, I believe, this Sunday. So our group is uh, meeting an hour earlier than normal. So we'll be meeting up before the game and then uh, whoever wants to hang out at our place can watch the game, that kind of thing. If you want to uh, do something like that or whatever, probably a good move um, just to have that conversation with your group. Uh, we are having a, a Super Bowl Food drive, um, probably you've heard of it by now. I know I mentioned it last week, but on Sunday, the 12th, you can bring a non-perishable food item uh, to church and we'll be distributing those to some uh, local community uh, food banks to support those around us who are in need of food. So bring one of those. Secondly, we have uh, a need for people to serve. Um, know that one thing we ask of Parkview members is to find a place to serve uh, at Parkview in a different ministry area, and we try to make those really clear. Uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't found a place like that or you just kind of need to re-up after a season that's been kind of dormant for you in that area, we just urge you to do that. We could absolutely use your help to make Parkview uh, thrive in so many ways. So uh, there is a special need, and I've been informed at Central campus at the 1030 service um, uh, for people to serve in a number of different areas, especially in the area of hospitality. Um, so we're talking about coffee and greeting people, the Connect Center, you know, helping people know where they're going, that kind of thing, particularly at 1030. So if you uh, want to learn more about that, would really urge you to, especially if you haven't found a place to serve yet. Uh, there will be something about that in the episode notes. So that's all for this week. Let's uh, move on to get guided on this passage. All right, this is a guide segment. Our goal is to get the big picture of the passage, to navigate any speed bumps that could disrupt discussion in our group, and to give, I want to give you a couple places to land in application. So Acts 19 verses 21 through 41 is the passage for this week, and it's a bit of a long one, so buckle up with me. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so it's uh, talking about staying in Ephesians when it says say, staying in Asia for a while. Um, now, 
like I said, I think I mentioned this last week, we're in Ephesians here for another uh, little bit, and we were last week. So I'd urge you, if you want to get sort of a bigger whole Bible context for what's going on here, we have a letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus called Ephesians. And so you'd be really helped by reading that reading that book. It's uh, six chapters, I believe, and it'd be a good one just to sort of get familiar with the, the ministry of Paul in that area. So if you're looking to go deeper and learn a little more, read the book of Ephesians this week and, and uh, bring your insights to your discussion with your group. Okay, moving on. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. I'll pause there. So uh, what's going to happen here, I'll just sort of spoil the surprise, is Demetrius is basically going to raise up a giant mob in the city uh, to, to try to disrupt what Paul and the church there in Ephesus is doing. We remember last week uh, we learned about how everyone in the whole uh, continent of Asia, the whole region of Asia, had heard the word of the Lord because of the ministry of Paul, and it was having some incredible effects, including you know, this mass confession of sin and the burning of these um, occult magical books with great value and um, the word of the Lord Jesus or the name of the Lord Jesus was being extolled greatly. And it's having such an effect that um, it's starting to disturb sort of the status quo of the city. Um, Now, Artemis. Artemis is going to feature widely, broadly, importantly here. So I just want to give you a couple uh, notes here. The the shrine or the temple, we should say, the temple to Artemis, is the largest building in the Greek world in Ephesus there. About four times the size of the Parthenon in Greece. You may have seen pictures of that, sort of one of the ancient wonders wonders of the ancient world. Um, the Ephesian temple was four times as big, the temple to Artemis. This was huge. Artemis is the goddess of fertility. She was known as the daughter of Zeus and Leto. Uh, not sure I'm saying that right. Uh, in Rome, she was called Diana. may have heard of that. She was known to help women in childbirth, um, to help with the harvest, to help with fertility. Um, there are 33 known shrines to Artemis, as in other temples, places of worship throughout the ancient world. That ha- Those are just the ones that have been discovered. Probably there were many more. So the cult of Artemis was enormous in those days. And as you listen to what Artemis was known to sort of be involved with, that you could go to Artemis and seek help in those areas, fertility, um, help women in childbirth. I've, you know, if you've been part of that in any way, you can imagine that the thought that uh, there was a, a deity, something that you could do to control what would have to feel like one of the most uncontrollable events of your life and terrifying things. Um, fertility, that, that would include the crops coming in, um, being able to have children, being your livestock, being able to, you know, reproduce and, and produce wealth for you. So you can see why Artemis was seen as one of the most significant sort of figures of the of the uh, the religion of the day, and so what what happens and what follows here will make sense if we really understand just how much stock was put uh, by Artemis and her power over people's worlds, especially in the areas where they felt like they didn't have control. Um, knowing that, I think helps us to see why this response happened and to see that this is not that far off from the world we're living in today. So, verse 25. These he gathered together, that was Demetrius, remember? These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
I'll pause there. This I'm, I'm right here in the middle of Demetrius's speech to the craftsmen um, and the workmen in similar trades. And, and basically, Demetrius is making a speech to help compel this whole group, this whole guild of workers in the silversmithing business to, to raise up a hue and cry, an outcry against Paul, against the Christians, because of the way that they're disrupting his business. Uh, you, you heard there, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So he's concerned about losing money. Uh, he says that in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Um, so he's concerned about the, the lack of popularity, um, the lack of business, certainly. Uh, to his, he says that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Um, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that this temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, who, she whom all Asia and the whole world worship. And so what's happened is Paul is disrupting um, this the status quo of worship to uh, Artemis and through that to the trade of these workmen who are basically, their, their jobs exist because Artemis is held in high esteem and worshiped. And because Paul has come and turned so many people away from that idolatry, um, it's beginning to affect in practical, visible, tangible, bottom line kind of ways how the business and how the city and how the whole world is starting to work. It's starting to fall apart because of what the gospel is doing. Demetrius' concerns, you can see those really clearly outlined. He's worried about loss of wealth, loss of income, loss in following, loss in reputation. And he sort of concludes by, by with a concern for the loss of honor for Artemis. Um, all of Asia has heard the word of the Lord. It doesn't seem like this is stopping, is what Demetrius is saying. And it seems like he's right. Um, but let's continue on. Um, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This was apparently something that happened frequently, by the way. Um, the, the sort of shouting of acclamations that would be repeated during festivals and things like this. We read this and we're like, what did they, for two hours? We'll see in a second. And apparently this was common. Great is Artemis the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who are Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. You can sort of imagine this scene. Um, the, the guildsmen and the craftsmen, have got, they've whipped up the whole city into a frenzy, and so many people are sort of rushing in to see what's going on that half of them don't even know why they're doing it. <laughs> um, some are crying one thing, one, one another thing. There's no clear sort of uh, united concern here. Um, but that's about to change. So verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And I'll, I'll actually stop there. So this man, Alexander, is put forward toward the toward the whole group. They're in a theater now. They're in a, you know, everyone can get, get a good view. And says the Jews had put Alexander forward. Um, and what that means is you saw that when Paul, when Demetrius was describing Paul and the concern about him, uh, he pointed out, very explicitly that he says, gods made with hands are not gods. And the Jewish population of the city, which would have been a, a very much a minority, a religious minority, would have shared that same view. Of course, the Old Testament, it's very clear. There's no God but one. The idols are all just made up. They're pieces of wood. Um, this is throughout the prophets, throughout the Old Testament. That's, that's 
understood. And so the Jews who didn't trust in Jesus would have wanted to demonstrate that they were not part of what Paul was doing and they should not be an object of their um, oppression and of their sort of inquiry that they're doing. And so the, the Jews put Alexander forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, and so the, the Jewish people's attempt, the, the synagogue there, their attempt to sort of uh, say, oh, hey, we're not part of Paul's deal. Focus on him, not us, uh, fails. <laughs> but then verse 35, uh, some, some order comes. It says, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Um, it's an interesting way for him to start. Now, the town clerk um, was the highest civil authority that there was in Ephesus. Um, it sounds like someone who just works at a desk, right? But that's not what it was. Um, this was, you might think of them as sort of the city manager, um, the city sort of leader. And most crucially, uh, for what we're going to learn here, the town clerk was the one who was the connection between Ephesus and Rome. So Ephesus was a free city within the empire of Rome. And that was sort of how Rome operated was they would conquer territories, but instead of sort of installing their own Roman leaders, they would allow those territories to be self-governing to a certain extent, so long as they could keep their city under control uh, deliver, um, you know, the tribute to Rome that was owed to them as the conquering territory and and not do anything that the Romans didn't like, especially killing their citizens, as we will see in a moment. Uh, so uh, the town clerk starts and says, who doesn't know that Artemis is great? Um, he, he's saying Artemis's honor is safe, guys. And, and maybe the implication here is if she's a goddess, then who cares what these fools are doing? Uh, she'll take care of it. If she's not, then... I mean, everyone knows. That's what he's saying. Um, of course, as we read it, we think, well, she is not a goddess, and therefore, she is not honorable. So, great. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, we read those two words, sacrilegious or blasphemers, and we, we probably just go, that's in the category of old English words that we don't use anymore, um, but they're translating actually uh, very specific technical legal charges that could have been filed, so to speak, against Paul and against those Macedonians who were there with him. Um, if they had been found guilty of them, there would have been real weight and punishment because in Rome there was certain protection that was afforded um, in terms of people's speech and actions that was not allowed against sort of certified religions of the state, which would have included the, the cult of Artemis. So if they had been found guilty of sacrilegious or sacrilege or uh, blaspheming or temple robbing would it be an, another thing. That's one way you can translate one of these words. He's saying if they had done one of those things, then that would, it would be legitimate what's you, what you're doing here. But they haven't. Um, and so he goes on to say in 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. He says, there's there's a legal way to do this without causing a riot. And you guys don't have a legal standing to do it. So here's what he says in 39. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger 
of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And so the town clerk basically brings in order, and he does so crucially for what Luke wants to teach us about what was happening with the movement of of Christians in that day. He does so by basically saying, uh, Paul has done nothing wrong. He has not broken the law. The, the Christian movement is not an underhanded political sort of subversion of the, of the order according to the laws of Rome. Um, the town clerk knew he had an interest in making sure that this rioting did not result in the murder of a civilian of Rome, uh, a Roman citizen, i.e. Paul or one, perhaps one of the Macedonians. We don't know for sure. Um, but what would happen if they were found to be um, doing that is they could lose their status as a free city. Um, there's a city in 20 BC, Cesius. I'm probably saying that wrong, um, but that was known. It lost its free status for almost this exact same reason. So some 50 years before this happened, they had a riot and they killed some Roman citizens at the town for some reason had kind of turned on. So the town clerk has an interest in doing that. And in doing so, he basically gives gives a significant protection to the emerging church that was coming, coming up, you know, growing in significance in Ephesus. Um, and so this is a, this is a really odd story. I don't know if you noticed, but a, a Bible or a, a Christian character doesn't really do do anything in this whole story. This is entirely it's all, it, it's more fitting for sort of the Roman history book, so to speak, than it is. You sort of read this story and you wonder what what's the point of it being in here? All that happens, you, you know, we're used to seeing Paul or Peter or some some Christian doing something. This entire thing is a story of a non-Christian, Demetrius, trying to start a riot against the Christians and failing because of, again, another non-Christian, the town clerk, serving sort of the interest of the public order. It's weird. But I think what what we should see here in this, I think, would be sort of a good big idea um, for this passage is that Jesus always upsets the status quo. Always. Uh the, the reigning authority, the thing that people were looking to to put their trust in, the thing that was the economic driver for the city, the thing that gave the world its proper orientation for the Ephesians was being turned on its head. And Demetrius, who he's probably acting somewhat out of self-interest, simple self-interest. Who knows if he's a, a true convert to, to Artemis? But he couldn't stand that, that Jesus coming into their region and into the world had turned their world upside down. Jesus had upset the status quo. And I think that's what, what we should meditate on as we read this. We see, um, we see that. So a couple of questions, a couple of points of application. First, has Jesus upset your status quo? If, if it's natural for us to read this and think, what are all the ways that, that Christ and the gospel would really transform our city, transform the way that we live and, and work and all that? We should first point that question at ourselves, right? Has Jesus so upset the way that you do things that if someone were to look into your life, they would say, um, what riot brought about the way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your energy? We think back to last week and the, the Ephesians Christians who came together to confess, to burn their magical books. They were doing things. It was clear their lives had been upset. The status quo had been upset. So I want to revisit that. Has Jesus upset your status quo? The way things work, the way you spend your money, the way you do uh, do life in such, in such a way as we see here. Second, is making disciples your hope for revolution. It's worth pointing out here that um, what brought about this revolution, like I said, was not Paul's sort of underground political subversion. 
it was not his sort of organized, I don't know, voting effort or whatever. It was not um, a, a re-indoctrination, I don't know, any kind of cunning strategy where where they could say, look, he's sort of breaking the rules. He's doing something wrong here. Um, it was simply, here's simply how it happened. This is how Luke presents it to us. Paul made disciples. He planted churches. The gospel went forward. People's lives were changed. And as a result, they were no longer spending their money to, to fund evil things, idolatry. And as a result, simply of them walking in faithfulness to Christ, his kingdom coming, his will being done, the way that the world worked could no longer operate the same way. And it was for no other reason than because the gospel was spreading. So often we get caught up in different ideas for how we could change the world, how what should happen, what this leader should do, what this person could do, when what God has called us to is clear. Help others take the next step with Jesus. We have big ideas about what could change and what should change. God has made himself clear. Are we making disciples in everyday life, helping the people around us, people in your community group, the people in your workplace, encourage them toward the next step in Christ? That is what formed this revolution, and that is what has formed every revolution for Jesus in world history as we study it. Um, Third, are you prepared for rejection? This, When Jesus comes in, in a powerful, non-ignorable way, there will be rejection. When the status quo begins to get upset, when the way things work no longer works because, because things have changed and because you don't fit in, do not be shocked. I often talk to people who have this goal in evangelism and, in, and just living the Christian life of being so winsome and so winning and so um, savvy uh, that their their sort of secret hope is that they can help people become Christians without ever having to say anything controversial. Friends, this is a pipe dream. <laughs> um, making disciples always involves risk. But Jesus has gone first. And so we can follow him into that, um, even if it costs us something. And it will, and it will be worth it. So uh, I hope you guys have a great time discussing this this week. I think there's a ton for us to learn from this passage. And as um, Mark and Doug preach uh, this this Sunday, I know we will be edified uh, by it. So uh, we're going to go to the training segment now. So if you're a leader, buckle up. If you are curious and you want to just grow as a disciple maker, buckle up. And if you uh, have other things to do right now, then uh, we'll see you next week. All right, moving on to the training segment, the train segment of this week's group podcast. I want to talk about listening. What was that? Listening. Yes. Are you a good listener? Would you describe yourself as a good listener? Maybe more significantly, with the people around you, the people in your group, the people in your workplace, whoever it happens to be, would they say, Bill is a great listener. He really listens. I know a few people in my life who I would just, who, and maybe you do too, whose faces immediately come to mind when I think of people who are good listeners. Um, think about those people. How do they make you feel? You trust those people, don't you? You want to talk to them. You want to share with them. They make you feel significant. Um, if we become good listeners, it won't be because we hope to manipulate and flatter people, um, but because actually we think they are significant. Listening 
is dignifying. Listening is humanizing. God listens to us. That is amazing. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. Um, I've been thinking about how rare it is for the people around us to actually be heard. Not just listened to, um, not just acknowledged vaguely, generally, but, but to actually be heard. Um, in our age, uh, you know, I've, some of this stuff is kind of terrifying, but um, there's a, a documentary I watched in particular about probably a year ago that was talking about our smartphones and technology and especially the prevalence of free services, free digital services. Your Gmail account is free. Your Facebook is free. Twitter is free. All this stuff that's free. And their, their point basically was, how do those companies make money? Well, they're not making it from you. And so actually they're making it from advertisements. And actually their, their whole, uh, you know, they have an incredible profit motive um, to keep your attention. They, the way they make money is by getting you to pay attention to things, specifically to advertisements on their site to deliver them and deploy them in a, in a clever way so that you pay attention to them and your eyeballs turn those advertisements into dollars for the people that they're advertising for. And so we've, we have become a culture where uh, attention, people's eyeballs, people's brain, you know, time, time spent looking at and considering and listening is one of our, maybe the most precious resource of all, the most commodifiable resource of all. And you think about people who are on social media, and especially I think of young people, I think of even, you know, as we try to do some of the stuff we're doing right now, we're running into this and having to think about what it means um, to sort of try to try to make, you're basically selling yourself to, to get people's attention on you. Doing TikTok dances and, I don't know, you know, doing controversial, making controversial comments or whatever it happens to be, following the latest trend, all in the hopes of being heard, of, of getting people's attention, of getting people's people to notice you. And what that means is for just about everyone walking around us, not, not just some people, but I think just about everyone, feels like hardly anyone listens to me. I am insignificant. No one really understands me because no one is really listening no one's really hearing me. And so to give people the gift of your attention has never been more valuable. To look someone in the eye and to adjust your body language, your body posture, to give them eye contact, to I, it, it's no small thing because they are probably experiencing that maybe one other time in the week. Maybe, maybe two, maybe outside of their spouse, outside of their roommate, outside of their best friend, whatever. This is something, this is a rare treat. It's a rare experience for them. And we can, we can humanize and dignify people and show them that Jesus thinks they are interesting. <laughs> that's, that's a bizarre thought, isn't it? Jesus thinks the people in your group are interesting. He's interested in them, and we ought to be too. And when we begin to actually listen to people, um, we'll find that we can actually help them 
learn Christ. Um, no one ever fits quite in a box, do they? And if, if we want to help people take the next step with Christ, which is what all of us want, we, we've got to know, what are they feeling? What are they experiencing? Um, we need them to know. It, so it's one thing, and by the way, here I'll, I'll cover some, some ways that we don't do this. One is we listen to understand. Now that's not a bad thing, is it? We listen to understand. But I know so many of you, you're well-educated, you have incredible brain power, power and um, this is a trap I tend to fall into also, where I'm listening to someone, but I'm also planning my response as I'm listening. I, I listened to the first sentence that they said, and I felt like I already know what the rest of it is coming. So I'm just going to skip ahead to the part where I think about my response instead of actually looking at them, not planning my response, looking at them in the eye, if they're comfortable with that, nodding. I'm, I, some of these things, you guys are going to think I'm just sort of a completely antisocial nitwit, but um, one of the things that COVID did for me was that I was on Zoom meetings all the time, and I saw live feedback of what my face looked like in meetings. And I don't know about you, but I realized I never smile. I look just upset all the time. And I would have to assume that the people who were in those meetings with me before then, what they probably assumed was that I was in my own world thinking about my own thoughts. Now, in my mind, I was totally engaged, right? I was totally, I was with them. I was, I was doing my best to think ahead and think, you know, be straight. But that, none of that mattered because I was just listening to understand. We want to listen to love. Listening is an act of love. We can listen in a way that not, doesn't just make people feel like I heard the information you said, but in a way that makes people feel understood. Um, one of the ways that we can do that is by... Um, by including people's comments, by, by returning to them, by saying, you know, Billy mentioned, the, you mentioned this a few minutes ago and it really got me thinking. When you're leading discussion, um, one of the ways you can do this is by, by mentioning what someone had said and sort of using that to piggyback off onto your next question. I've talked before about how we can affirm people in, in what we see affirmable in them. Uh, you know, I will often find myself just saying, that's that's the spirit of Jesus in you. Thank you. Um, you know, as I've thought about this, I've thought, you know, as much as I, I want our groups to be essentially a ministry of good questions, um, because I think that's what people need, is to to really be sort of thrown back on their own resources to to help them learn Christ, to see where they where they need to grow and people that tends to happen in sort of reflection on God's word with good questions um, rather than just us sort of being experts who have good answers and um, which can feel good, but often doesn't help them grow. How do we know what good questions to ask if we don't know people well? So let's continue to grow in the ministry of listening. Let's love our people by listening to them. And, uh, and in doing so, we dignify them, we humanize them, we do what I think Jesus wants to do with them, um, and we may even actually help even more to encourage them to grow in Christ. We certainly cultivate an environment of relational safety when we do that. So let's do that. That's a good labor worth doing. Um, now, let me pray for us and send you out. Will you pray with me for your group this week? Heavenly Father, we thank you for another week of ministry 
We think of the places and people and situations that our people are facing right now, and we pray that they would be encouraged in Christ, that they would sense that you, Lord, are interested, available, powerful to help them in real practical ways to be faithful where they are right here, right now. Help them do that, Lord, even as I'm listening, even as we're praying. Um, bring to mind a couple of faces that I could encourage, that I could reach out to, um, that I could pray for personally right now. Lord, I pray that Acts 19, this passage that we're studying this week, that we're discussing, um, that you would bless our discussion, that uh, our people would, would come ready to discuss. They would come, be physically present, be ready um, to encourage one another, and that you would give give me wisdom to know how to lead well and help us, Lord, to be, help us to grow in our practice of listening. Help me. Help me to, to listen in a way that not just helps me understand, but helps me to love and helps my people to feel loved. And pray you would do all this for the glory of King Jesus. Amen. All right. So proud of you. Keep up the good work. Talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you.